Good evening. It is I, Ian Corey, immortal podcast editor. I have stopped time to tell you, my captive audience, that the Human Instrumentality Podcast has launched a Patreon. That's right. For the cost of one dollar a month, you will be blessed with the luxury of an exclusive bonus episode of the Human Instrumentality Podcast on the first of each month of the year. And those willing to part with five dollars or more will get even more rewards, including regular episodes two days early and their name etched into the credits of every episode. So subscribe now at Patreon slash Human Instrumentality Pod. And on the 1st of October, you will receive our first bonus episode about none other than the David Productions anime adaptation of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Stardust Crusaders. Welcome back to Season 2 of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. My name is Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. Today, we are honored to be joined by Andrew Osmond, a freelance journalist and the author of Satoshi Kone, The Illusionist, to talk about the first two episodes of Kone's soul TV anime, Paranoia Agent. We won't spoil anything from the rest of the series, but we will make note of foreshadowing when it's relevant. Human Instrumentality Podcast, Season 2, Episode 6, Rolling. Episode 1, Enter Little Slugger. We begin in modern Tokyo, jumping from commuter to commuter in the bustling early morning. Everyone is lost in chatter on their mobile phones, each passing the buck, so to speak, in some way. Everyone, that is, except a mysterious white-haired old man writing a long equation in chalk on the sidewalk. The old man is about to finish his equation when he looks up and sees a young woman passing him on a bus. This woman is Tsukiko Sagi, a character designer working at a Sanrio-esque company. Her latest creation is Mello Maromi, a pink puppy that's done quite well. So well, in fact, that her superior, Hatamura, pesters her at her desk about delivering a new character before promising a, quote, miracle from her by Monday to his own superiors. After dark, on her way home from work, Tsukiko gets her miracle in the form of a sinister force, an oppressive shadow suggesting some malignant assailant inside of it. Distracted by a homeless old woman, Tsukiko trips in a parking lot, 
spilling her character drawings onto the asphalt. Frantically, she tries to pick her drawings up before whatever she thinks is chasing her can catch up, but she's too slow and is struck down by a blow to the head. The attack makes the news. Tsukiko is visited in the hospital by a pair of detectives, Maniwa and Akari, who struggle to get details out of her, except a vague description of her attacker, an elementary school kid with a baseball bat. In the coming days, the media dubs the attacker Lil Slugger, or in Japanese, Shonen Bat. In the hospital lobby, Kawazu, an indebted gossip column writer, tries to talk his way out of a lawsuit. Turns out he struck the equation-writing old man from the opening in a hit-and-run. Kawazu has a brief, snide exchange with the detectives as they leave. Then, sensing an opportunity, Smooth talks his way into Tsukiko's room. In the parking lot, the detectives make a dinner bet on whether Tsukiko is faking her attack, then drive off the parking spot to reveal the answer to the old man's equation. 510, Tsukiko's room number. Ikari and Maniwa track down the only possible witness to the assault, the homeless old woman, but Kawazu beats them to her abandoned tent, pocketing one of Tsukiko's drafts without the detective's knowledge. Meanwhile, Tsukiko scrolls through her email. As she scrolls, the initial swell of online support for her gradually turns sour, with strangers emailing her to call her a liar. Just as Tsukiko begins to lose her nerve, her Maromi doll comes to life. It immediately pacifies her, telling her that everybody is just jealous of her, and she shouldn't worry. Later, Tsukiko is cornered in the street by Kawazu, who coerces her into a lunch meeting in order to question her. Kawazu doubts her story, tries to peek up her skirt, ugh, and tells her that her co-workers hate her, which triggers a flashback in Tsukiko, as well as a panic attack. Tsukiko doesn't give Kawazu any leads, but she does finally give a verbal account to the detectives, which travels through the gossip chain, distorting Shonen Bat into some kind of cross between an urban legend and a cryptid? Undeterred, Kawazu follows Tsukiko to her apartment, number 510, down the same back alley where she was attacked. There, Kawazu is struck down by Shonen Bat, who stops to tell Tsukiko hello before disappearing into the night, proving the reality of her attack and earning Detective Maniwa Korean barbecue for dinner. Episode 2, The Golden Shoes. Yuichi, a middle schooler who rides around on a pair of golden rollerblades, is the most popular kid in school. Or so he thinks. Smart, athletic, and charming with a winning smile and an upcoming birthday, Yuichi is on top of the world, until he goes to class and finds that everyone thinks he's Shonen Bat. This is especially unfortunate because he's running for class president against pudgy but friendly Ushiyama. As his social ostracization escalates, Yuichi half-heartedly confides in his tutor, Harumi, who immediately identifies that he's being bullied. 
Wary of involving adults, Yuichi says he'll fix the problem himself. His idea of fixing it is to threaten Yushiyama, who he believes is spreading rumors about him behind the school. Unfortunately for Yuichi, an unseen student documents his intimidation tactics with a camera phone and distributes the images to his entire class the next day. Even worse, Ushiyama, his victim, secures the moral high ground by demanding that the cyberbully come forward. This absolutely tanks Yuichi's reputation and earns him a visit from Detectives Ikari and Maniwa, who ask if he knew Tsukiko. Yuichi doesn't, but hopes that the interrogation will clear him in the eyes of his peers. It does the opposite, leaving him alone with his mother and Harumi at his unfortunately lavish birthday party. Crippled by shame, Yuichi finds himself walking back from school with Ushiyama the next day. Ushiyama tells him that though he's all but guaranteed to become class president, the pressure from running for office is taking a toll on him. Turns out, he only ran to try and gain some self-confidence. Immediately, Shonen Bat attacks Ushiyama. But when Yuichi begs to be struck down as well, the attacker flashes his own winning smile back at him and promptly vanishes. The next morning, on the day of the student council elections, Yuichi cowers under his covers, convinced that his classmates will blame him for Ushiyama's injury. Yuichi tumbles into a paranoid, psychedelic, daylit, nightmare version of his walk to school, which only ends when Shonen Bat finally shows up and knocks him out. Home run! And those are the first two episodes of Satoshi Kon's only television series, Paranoia Agent. It's one of Ian's favorites. Revisiting it has been certainly a trip in multiple senses of the words, for me. And there's no better way to begin that trip than with a great guide. My guide for the research on this season has been Andrew Osmond, who we're lucky to have on the podcast with us right now. Andrew is the author of Satoshi Kon, The Illusionist, the book that is the core text that I use to research this entire season. It's an honor to have you here, Andrew. Hello, and uh, thank you so much for having me. Before we just dig into Paranoia Agent, I thought maybe you could tell our listeners where it is you're writing right now, because I know that Ian and I uh, have both at times had careers as freelance writers. You're still a freelance journalist, and uh, the perpetual freelance writer problem is, where are you working right now, you know, and making sure people <laughs> are aware. So because I'm, I will fumble, I will uh, not hit a shonen bat slash little slugger home run if I try. So please tell us, where are you writing right now? What are you working on, my friend? I write a lot of the moments for the British anime magazine, Neo. I also write fairly regularly for uh, a commercial blog called All of the Anime, which is the blog owned by Anime Limited. I sometimes do reviews for SFX magazine and uh, occasionally for animation for adults. And um, I sometimes uh, work on books. Um, at the moment, um, one thing I'm, I'm one thing I'm, I'm excited about is uh, I've uh, co-written a book with uh, Jonathan Clements on uh, Future Boy Conan, which uh, the 
70s uh, Miyazaki TV series. That will be included with the uh, UK Blu-ray release of Future by Conan in, I believe, the near future. Uh, I'm afraid it is not um, included with the American release, but it will be with the British release. Well, that is awesome. I've never... God, why I can't tangent this early. Ian stopped me from tangenting <laughs> this early, but I'm just going to say this one thing. I've never even begun to dig into Future Boy Conan. It's one of those it's one of those things that have perpetually been like on the oh gotta check that out list and I just never quite get around to it. But that is cool. I also think it's probably worth pointing out right now that your book is called Satoshi Kon the Illusionist. There's also a documentary with the same name. In Z, yes, yes. You're in the documentary, but they're not related. Do I have that right? That's uh, that is basically correct. Yes, I mean, um, I, I am in the documentary as one of uh, many many interviewees, but um, uh, I was not at all involved in the making or editing of the of the documentary. In fact, the film's director um, asked me if um, I was okay with him using the title, and I was very happy for him to use it. But um, I just emphasise that the um, documentary is not uh, based on my book or linked to my book in any way. It is its uh, own entity, its own creation. Cool. <laughs> I think that was, that was a, a worthwhile digression. I, I'm fine with that one. I'll keep that one in, Joseph. Don't worry. You're okay uh, with that, Ian? Okay. I'm... Indeed I am. <laughs> um, you did bring up a few interesting things that I, I feel like it's worth noting here because you're, you're our first guest to not be from the United States. Uh, and so most of the time when we're talking about the sort of cross-cultural communication and the experience of being an anime fan it's done through the perspective of receiving this stuff in america sort of at a distance not being that close to the primary source so to speak so i'm, I'm curious about the popularity and the the availability of Cohn's work in the united kingdom uh, and whether that's changed since you wrote the book or what the status of of it is now um yes i uh, since I, I wrote the book in, uh, I think the book was published in, in 2010, which was actually shortly before uh, Con died. The, since then, I think the uh, uh, Con's, Con's work has become more available in the UK. Certainly, it, it did take a while. Perfect Blue has a cinema release in, in uh, Britain, I think around 1999. But then after that, I think both uh, Millennium Actress and Tokyo Godfathers missed uh, cinema releases. And they were only um, uh, released in on uh, British uh, DVD some years later. And in fact, the first time I saw Perfect Blue was in 2004 at a cinema showing in London because uh, the first three episodes were shown in a couple of, pla- a couple of uh, venues in London fairly close to the uh, Japanese broadcast. And that was before either Millennium Actress or Tokyo Godfathers came to British uh, DVD. Interesting. So that was your, what was your, your first exposure to Cone was, I'm assuming, Perfect Blue or was it the, uh uh-huh. And so you saw Paranoia Agent second then. I think so, yes. It's the the best of my memory, yes. Mm -hmm. I think that tracks pretty well with what Joseph and I have talked about, about the general American experience of watching a lot of his work, is that, you know, Perfect Blue is sort of this landmark 
cultural breakthrough, part of that whole wave of very challenging, innovative, uh, kind of mind-bending anime from the 90s. But his other two movies since then didn't quite have the same impact on, uh, on this side of the Pacific. But Paranoia Agent was on Adult Swim and I think was probably a lot of people's first exposure to his work. Is Joseph, when did you first see... We, we talked about it a bit, but just to refresh, because it's been a while since we've recorded, do you want to retell your paranoia or uh, paranoia agent origin story? Sure. So I, I was an Animerica subscriber. I even subscribed to like New Type for like the like brief gasp in time where they thought New Type was going to make money in the United States. I don't know who made that decision. That was not correct. But so I was aware of. Cone, and I was like aware that Paranoia Agent was coming out. I think there was a new type magazine that had like, you know, they would do like preliminary character sketches like in fold outs and stuff. So I think like I had seen the Shonen Bat slash Lil Slugger design before. Mm-hmm. And I was an Adult Swim devotee. I was like kind of raised by the Toonami slash Adult Swim programming block. It, like I was raised by that block in a way that I think people four years older than me were like raised by the Simpsons, if that makes sense. <laughs> and I'd seen perfect blue, some of perfect blue. And I, I, I seen millennium actress. I loved millennium actress. So I was like, okay, Cohen's going to do a TV series. It's going to be on adult swim. I'm going to watch it. Weird ghost kid with a bat. Don't know what that's about. Sounds cool. I guess. And then I, I watched it and my first experience, and we'll get into this when we get into the plot of the episodes, my first experience with Paranoia Agent was actually fairly negative. Although like, I remember like watching it and seeing it and knowing like, this is good. And like openly wondering, why don't I like this? Mm-hmm. The rewatch doing this with Ian has been good for me because I, I think I appreciate it more now. Although there's still some things about it that kind of irk me. But maybe that's just because, like, I want Cone to do something like Millennium Actress again, and he never did, really. I, I think maybe Paprika comes closest in some ways to, to like, the um, Millennium Actress has, like, a warm fuzziness t- t- to me that I really enjoy. And that is not the paranoid agent experience. Like, no. it, is a, <laughs> it is a well, like, it is a well-named television series do you want to worry that everyone around you is out to get you is that a symptom of your exact mental illness it is a symptom of mine watching this cartoon will make that worse (laughs) (laughs) so that's my experience with it i think just to, to to round it out i first came into contact with this show on the internet pretty much i think almost the exact same youtube playlist that i sent andrew just in case you weren't able to to review the episodes prior to recording you know it was these like chopped up versions of the episode with like fan subtitles and all of these like annotations hovering around in the corners to like point out a lot of the visual metaphors or or puns cuz there's so much you know there's so many like bits of wordplay that don't come across to the American audiences. I don't think like characters, names resembling the names of animals, that kind of stuff. And I've got to say, experiencing paranoia agent first and foremost on the internet totally adds to this. Like one of the things that I think is so interesting about the show is that it kind of encourages the 
the paranoia and the obsessiveness that the detectives are experiencing in the viewers themselves to like chase down every clue and try to figure it out. And it can kind of drive you nuts in the same way that it kind of drives the characters in the show nuts. So, but before we're about to do the thing where you like get into the show Mm -hmm. and like kind of raring to get into it, to be honest. Well, okay. So let's let's make it, let's make a decision then. And Andrew, I want you to be part of this decision. Do we want to start talking about paranoia agent now, or do we want to, or do we want to first get some more into, and if, if not, we'll do this at the end. Right. But I, I do want to know about your making the book. And I want to know about talking with Satoshi Kon because the other thing that's unique sure. about you as a guest is you're the only person that we've ever spoken to who's spoken with the filmmaker. Whereas, like, I, like I love our Evangelion season. I think it's great. I love all of our guests, but no one there has even like is even like two degrees removed from Hideki Anno, right? So it's it's all like to a certain extent, it's all kind of speculative, right? But you had access to cone and spoke with the man right so like but so, so what do we think do we want to do parent would you want to keep going on paranoia agent or do we want to talk about like cone cone the man let's talk about cone because i think that'll be illuminating for our conversation about the show okay so y- you interviewed satoshi cone uh yes so i um I did an email interview with him first um, around the time of Perfect Blue. I later did a short group interview with him at the uh, Venice Film Festival. That was the time when he uh, uh, showed Paprika. And then I think in 2007, I was able to interview him at uh, Madhouse in uh, Tokyo. And uh, that was the longest interview, yes. That's three years before the book comes out. Actually, I think the book may, may have come out in 2009, actually. So, so yes, yeah, so it's, it was two years before. Okay, but that's mm-hmm. that's still some, that's still like a, a length of time. Okay, so the book is not, so readers probably haven't had, a ch- uh, listeners probably haven't had a chance to uh, read the book. Uh, one, because it's out of print and very hard to find. But for people who haven't, it's it's fairly brief. But there's tons of cone quotes in it. Like there's there's just a ton of information packed into every page. So how long was that interview? Like how long did you have with him? It was not so long. It was maybe about uh, it was maybe about forty minutes. And I uh, obviously I do not speak Japanese. Um, I should emphasize that. So obviously it was via translator. But um, Con very kindly um, at the end of the interview, he said, "If if uh, we didn't get to um, any further que- any further questions, then you're free to uh, email them to Madhouse, and I will answer them." And I did, and uh, later I got uh, further comments uh, back from him by email. So uh, I was able I was able to uh, add to it that way. Also, um, some of the quotes uh, do come from the earlier interviewer interviews the uh, email interview with perfect blue and the venice interview and then obviously as my notes indicate uh, many of the quotes in the book come from interviews that he did with other people um there's a full uh, bibliography at the uh, back of my book yeah i and it, it is well the bibliography is very well done by the way it was super instrumental in me finding other sources of information for this podcast so thank you so i guess what's so what's your read on, like, Cone the Man? I know that's not, like, the most incisive or, like, intellectual question I could ask, but I gotta know. what what, And I know that we're talking about someone who's passed away and we're going to be respectful of his memory, of course. But at the same time, 
guy who goes from Tokyo Godfathers to this to Paprika, what's this guy's deal? Like, give me like, give me like some of the flavor. What's his vibe? I dearly wish I had a better answer for you, I'm afraid. So I'm not hmm. the, I'm in the ends, I suppose I'm not the most insightful at reading people in general and um, particularly not people speaking in another language. Um, basically he was, um, when I, the, the times when I saw him, he was organized. He was, uh, he was very courteous. He seemed to reflect on my questions before answering them. I, I am trying to think of a more substantial answer, but I don't know that I can give any more than that, I'm afraid. So I, I, I realize that must be frustrating for you, but I'm, no, I mean, he, it's, 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 it's a very, very professional situation. He was very courteous. He sure. asked my questions, asked my questions fully. And I realized that's uh, an extremely boring answer, but I'm, I, my apologies. There's no reason to apologize. And I, like Ian looks like he's maybe got like something to say, but I'm just going to say, uh, first of all, I, I think that's fine. And that's what I was expecting. Like th that is like one of the ongoing threads of like me rediscovering this guy's work is I don't think it is just you. And I don't think it is just the language barrier. I think there's, there's like something elusive, like in, in Cone. he strikes me through his filmmaking, through his storytelling as someone who like, had like a secret perspective or a secret truth that he kept withheld from all but the most intimate people. He seems like not like someone with a secret, but like someone who doesn't want to, to express like the, the entirety of what they, they think, you, you, you know, like, I think that is like a thing with him. He's, it's not like Hideaki Anno where it's someone who seems like incapable of not, putting all of himself into everything, right? It's almost the opposite. And so maybe I'm experiencing like shell shock from like going from one to the other so rapidly, but I, mm. I don't think it is you. Don't blame yourself. I, like that's what I expected. Certainly I think your comments are supported by the uh, circumstances of, of his dying when obviously most people, nearly everybody had no idea he was ill until the announcement came that he had died. I mean, it was all kept extremely private, except from his immediate uh, colleagues and um, uh, and family. And um, apart from that, it was um, entirely private until the news broke in 2010. Yeah, I think that taken in combination, just sort of trying to loop this impression of the man around his work, there's such a, uh, a hesitancy and concern about the effects of public life and fame on the people that are experiencing that sort of public attention. So it makes a lot of sense to me that in his own interactions, you know, either through the media or in general with the public, that he would keep a certain amount of himself reserved from that and, and kept at a distance to kind of maintain both privacy, but also to not allow the uh, the eyes of the world to influence him or you know, dig into something that they, they shouldn't have access to in any way. Yeah. I mean, certainly the um, contrast between the public and private persona is uh, so much a part of his work. It's um, one of his most re recurring themes. Yeah, it's true. Right. We can only really, it, I think the fact that he does have somewhat, you know, there's the distance of him keeping people at a distance and being professional and, and not revealing all of himself, but then, on top of that, there's the distance of the fact that we can't ever get to know him anymore because of his passing that 
all that we really can do is is read into what the work says to some extent now. And Joseph, did you have any other further questions or do you want to get moving on the, the paranoia agent side of things or well, how do you feel? I actually had a segue. Oh, good. Uh, here's, segue away. Here's my segue. I'm good. I think my favorite sentence in your entire book, though, is one that complicates this sentiment we have about Cone. When I was reading your book, I had to close it and walk away when I read the sentence in the paranoia agent section where you say, yeah, Satoshi Kone has a bunch of Maromi dolls in his office. Yep. (laughs) Like I had to close. I'm like, this guy's twisted. Like this part that he does not want me to know. He's like somewhat embarrassed of, or like what is going on where like in paranoia agent, he has this character this like symbol of that conflict between public and and private sort of this like almost semi-malignant arbiter between people's like frontward facing selves and their shadow selves like Maromi looks cute maybe I guess if you squint I actually don't think Maromi is a well-designed character which I think is weird (laughs) but like that he has a problem with people taking this like weird perverted demigod and merchandising it in the show and then keeps actual merchandising of it in his office when he's talking to someone about the show is like, that is some, that's like almost kinky. I had to walk away. (laughs) Like I was like, what is going on? Satoshi code. So, and I guess maybe that's the, the way for us to, to, talk about paranoia agent because i do think in a way that i don't get in tokyo godfathers and don't exactly get in millennium actress one thing i got from paranoia agent from rewatching it is i think this is kind of him having fun like this is this is him pushing people's buttons and and kind of digging it mm-hmm. you know so that's what i wanted to say let's talk about maromi and Shonen Bat slash Little Slugger and pushing people's fucking buttons. <laughs> so I think the interesting thing is already from the very beginning of the first episode, we have this kind of meta textual thing going on about an artist attempting to follow up a massive success and having some degree of writer's block. And Joseph and I have talked about how Perfect Blue being this kind of right out of the gate, huge cultural success has sort of added this extra pressure on the following two films to kind of catch up with it. And so I I love that right from the jump, we have Tsukiko trying to come up with another design that matches the success of Maromi and seems unable to do so. And so we have this introduction where already the lines between author and character are kind of murky and and complicated. It gets you worrying kind of immediately right from the first scene. One thing that I wish I looked into now that I'm talking is like Sanrio characters, right? Because I, I think there's mm-hmm. also like an element of like commercial commentary that Cone's dealing with in, in the first episode, but also th- throughout anytime Maromi comes up, right? That, that seems like in some way, like uh, uh, to, to us, it would be like someone commenting on Disney. Right, maybe, but I don't know that much ab- about San Rio, so maybe that's too much. Maybe that is like a step too far. So I guess, like, 
what what do we what do we think about this this way that he's in that Tsukiko is sort of like mirroring Cone in, in these ways or, or serving as an authorial insert in some ways and also like his ongoing like project in his work of like commenting on industries or society right mm-hmm. well I mean it's interesting that uh, Tsukiko um, she perplexes the the detectives um, she seems so disconnected and. Uh, Tripping, even even when she's uh, even when they're questioning her in the um, in the in the hospital room, and they're asking her, um, "What did your attacker look like?" and she is just uh, doing sketches, and uh, you're not quite sure whether she's trying to remember or whether she's just making something up. And um, mm-hmm. there's this kind of uh, enigma about her from from the start, and uh, that's before the dog starts talking back to her later on. So I mean, if, if you're talking about the enigma of Con, then you could argue that is reflected in uh, Sukiko to some extent. Yeah, I was thinking about how you know there's this sense the, the the pressure at the beginning of the episode is like, can you come up with another iconic character that will have this same sort of almost mimetic quality spreading across society. And we then see her drawing the outline in the same way that she's drawing these other Sanrio esque, you know, cute animals. We see her drawing Shonen bat. And obviously the, the, the two detectives, uh, Ikari and Maniwa have this bet going about whether or not the attacker is real or not. So we're already introduced to this idea of, is she making up the next character that's going to have this, you know, uh, viral spread across society? Yeah, uh, it, it allows us that sort of ambiguous state where we ne- we don't see the attack initially, and so we're not sure as viewers whether or not Little Slugger or Shonen Bat will probably use the two interchangeably is uh, is real or not at, at least at this point in the in the very first episode so and there is this kind of um iconic quality to him there's this he's only there are only so so many elements of his character design and all of them are extremely unique and and kind of pop in the way that designing a character for a tv show or for you know a a manga or what have you you would try and identify these elements that would make him immediately stand out even in a silhouette how, how do we do we want to talk about Sanrio at all? Or do we have anything to say about Sanrio? I feel like the, it's the kind of thing that is like maybe the American audiences that are not familiar with anime are probably familiar with Hello Kitty on some level, but uh, it's a it's a much larger um, cultural institution in Japan than I think maybe Americans have a a, a clear idea about. Well, I mean. Uh... I don't know. I'm afraid I don't know so much about uh, Sanrio uh, myself, but uh, Hello Kitty is obviously um, extremely ubiquitous in Japan. The times have gone there. Um, there is there's a Hello Kitty theme park, and certainly it's uh, something that uh, Japanese kids uh, grow up with, um, elementary school age or earlier. In the same in the same way as uh, Mickey Mouse. Yes, since um, Hello Kitty, the kind of uh, the bland, faceless. Uh, heads that you can read anything onto i mean i think i think that was always the comments um about why hello kitty was so popular that you could um read any expression onto mm. her face um depending on how you felt and you could argue that um uh, uh 
Maromi in uh, Paranoid Agent's house, uh, some of the same Yeah, appeal. I think one of the things that another sort of interesting little wrinkle that the show has is that you can never really tell. Well, Maromi's eyes sort of move around a lot, even before we see Maromi stand up on it of its own accord and have a conversation. There are these moments where these little insert shots where we see where Maromi's eyes are being cast. So we can read into Maromi's gaze all of this these feelings like... Is it apprehensive of the detectives? Is it staring down onto Tsukiko from the computer monitor? Is it looking around during the the crime scene and all of that? It, it it seems to have a mind of its own, and you can you as the reader are looking into these giant you know anime eyeballs and uh, ascribing intent there, whether it is there or not. It, it, the design invites us to assume things about it in the same way that you're describing the blankness of Hello Kitty does the same at this it, it's funny that you mentioned like Maromi looking around because on this rewatch this is sort of like an obvious like a film school 101 idea right but like I, I, one of the things that i think Kohn does well is film school 101 ideas he just has like a he has basic ideas and executes them flawlessly this is the first time re-watching this episode where you see Maromi's eyes move to look at Kawazu right before Kawazu gets shown and batted. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a typical cone quick cut, right? So like I think 17-year-old me watching Adult Swim probably stoned Saturday night at like 11:30 doesn't see that, right? right. <laughs> but this time I was going through and pausing me like, okay, are Maromi's eyes moving? No, I think that's the first time you see them move. I may be wrong. Listeners may have have a better idea, but I, I love that setup of taking this like stand in for a ubiquitous cultural character and adding something sinister to it. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's one of the strengths of the the show in general. But I think this episode in particular. That it happens so subtly and so briefly when we're concerned about something else, namely Shonen Bat. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a subtle move. Uh, I also like how much you can see of Maromi just kind of scattered throughout Tokyo in this first episode, which is a, a, its own recurring visual motif that only picks up in in intensity as the the series goes on. You know, when the detectives are interviewing the young teenage girls there's this you know glass case full of maromi dolls directly next to them when they find the uh, the otaku character who will probably have a lot to say about if not in this episode then in the next one he's wearing a, a maromi t-shirt it just keeps showing up everywhere you know you can't look anywhere without a maromi doll somewhere in the background uh and that we see this character already, you know, acting, saying its own lines and and behaving with a real personality should perhaps give us pause as to what it means that there are so many of it just sort of scattered around the, the whole of the TV show. What's interesting about if, if we're going to continue thinking, how much does this episode serve as a little bit of autobiography or, or, or self career commentary by Cohn, which I always love when when authors do that. So, of course, this is what I'm thinking mm-hmm. about. It is interesting to note that I don't think Cohn really has an iconic character in his filmography. You mean visually it's, speaking? Or? Visually speaking, since Mima, right? Uh-huh. The, the Tokyo Godfathers are good, 
but like the the main character millennium actress and also hana and tokyo godfathers what makes them like stand out is their flexibility is how they move how the characters like metamorphose from scene to scene mima's always mm-hmm. mima and it does sort of seem like maybe Cohn was thinking I need another iconic character. That's where maybe that's like a thing that he feels he could have improved on in those two films. And I don't think that iconic character actually is Maromi. I, I think it's shown in bat the the design of, of this weird little cryptid kid is fucking great. Yeah. <laughs> and you get to see it evolve over time. Like at first it's just baseball bat, you know, and, and kid wielding it. But as Tsukiko is, pushed further into the corner by Kawazu, by the detectives, she starts to find all of these other details that she begins to associate with it. Like, you know, the, the interesting thing about uh, Kawazu's character with the three of us being, you know, writers is we have to maybe hold this guy at a bit of a distance because none of us want to be too much like him, but he does start to, you know, track down and ask some pretty tough questions about the attack and it's at that moment when the other kids, you know, skate by behind Sukiko that she realizes like, oh, inline skates, that becomes part of the character. So the character is beginning to accumulate traits over the course of the episode rather than all arrive at once. It almost is this artistic process of uncovering Shonen Bat, you know, from the perspective of the artist who uh, who suffered the attack from Shonen Bat. Also, um, this comments may possibly need to be edited out, but uh, there is an image, I think, in part one, where uh, Shonen Bat's, uh, at the end of the episode, uh, part one, where Shonen Bat's uh, shadow falls um, over the ground and um, Maromi is on his head. Um, mm, yeah. Merged in that way. <laughs> They're always going to be linked. Even before we see Shonen Bat, uh, when the old man is, you know, doing the equation down on the floor, when he looks up, he sees inline skaters pass in front of the bus where we can see Maromi. So even though we, we we're not going to describe exactly what that foreshadowing is, the foreshadowing is absolutely, it is not subtle. <laughs> it is, it is right up in your face in, at that ending scene. So I'm glad that we, we made a note of that because that's the kind of thing that is going to get people's minds worrying when they try to figure out what the deal is between these two characters. Um, but we should perhaps talk about the other characters that we do know truly do exist in the, the world of, of paranoia. And we've spent so much time talking about these two kind of iconic hazy stand-in characters but we should probably talk about Tsukiko who's sort of the the main focus of this first episode you know as as someone who's written about Kona a lot I, I'm sure that you've you know made note of the the women in his his movies are typically the main characters they're typically very very fleshed out characters very you know well-written characters and are kind of the drivers of the action and I think Tsukiko is an interesting break from that mold. She's she's a slightly different uh, type of person. She's what's your impression of Tsukiko as a as a character compared to the other Cohen women? Yes, no, I'm just thinking about it. I mean, uh, Cohen himself, I think, described uh, Mima um, at least the flesh and blood Mima in Perfect Blue as fairly passive as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but but obviously, we follow her far more. Paranoid agents 
as as I said earlier, Sakika is obvi- obviously seems weirdly detached from the action. The, uh, the the other characters, the detectives, can't read her. Um, we later find out that uh, her co-workers don't like her, and we're not sure of her. We don't know if uh, she's um, sort of a uh, cutely mad or scarily mad. In fact, I mean to be honest, there is a there is a very very strong female character in Paranormal Agent, but it is not Sakiko, and uh, yep. the character I'm thinking of does not appear for a long way into the series. Thinking about her, I'm mean, obviously she she's in part one. I, I don't think she. Um, I'm not sure she even appears at all in part two. Um, she does vanish for. Um, fairly lengthy sections of the of the series in the second episode she she only appears watching the news so that we can also have her and Moromi's commentary on the attacks that happen in the second episode but she's very much a background character and that kind of speaks to the the anthology quality of of this uh tv show which is that it jumps around from perspective to perspective on an episode to episode basis and in, in fact to be honest in episode three there will be another female character who um quite honestly is more active and you get more of a sense of her than uh far more than you do of uh Sukiko in um episode one i think uh as you know Sukiko will develop much later in in some ways we will find out more about her and um she will form a connection with another character in the series at the beginning yeah, I mean, to be honest, um, you were talking about uh, Shonen Bats and Maromi both being hazy, but in some ways I think you could extend that to Sakiko as well. She is mm-hmm. very hazy at the beginning, mu- uh, mu- in the way that um, Mima or Kyoko, or certainly Hannah, they weren't. I mean, you know, they had um, much more of the kinds of real-world presence than Sakiko, I think, at least in the, at least in the first episodes. I, th- I think you're... You're hitting on one of the one of the things that did put me off of this show, because I I don't love Tsukiko as a main character for that reason. I, I find her hard to relate to, which is a, a, a failing as a viewer. That's a failing as of me as a young viewer, but it it does. I think it is sort of interesting that for s- someone who's so into like classic film and um art, art, artistic execution. I think that this first episode succeeds more on a technical storytelling level than a character level, at least for the first half. Because like the other thing that's off-putting about this show is, as Ian said, it switches perspective all the time. That's really jarring in the transition from the first episode to the second. But it also happens in the the first episode because like Sukiko yes. exists, Sukiko gets attacked. But I, I, I think really the first step, the first episode's like main character, so to speak, is kind of Kawazu in, in a way. And what a way to, what a way to start a series, right? With like the, like one of the most loathsome human beings I've ever seen animated. (laughs) I enjoy him actually. I mean, he is grotesque, but I actually find him quite hilarious. Um, And the, um, I mean, I love the detail where his um, tongue sort of hangs out while he's apologizing to, um, I think it's the son of the old guy he's run down. And then later on, you have this, um, completely off the cuff um sequence which doesn't seem to connect to anything where he suddenly has the is able to massively impersonate um all of <laughs> Sakiko's uh, co-workers and it's just 
I mean, it doesn't really connect. He, he never does it again, but um, it's just a really, really funny scene. And um, I mean, I only mourn the fact he doesn't get his own spin-off series, which I mean, you know, to, to see him as the investigator in his own series would be great fun. I, I, do, I do actually enjoy his scenes. I mean, obviously he's horrible, but um, he is, I think, I find him quite enjoyable. Oh, I think that's yeah. the exact balance that I, I feel too, where like you're supposed to be somewhat off put by him, like all the way down to the character design. You know, he's significantly shorter than all of the other characters and he's linked through the, the series of, you know, animal metaphors as well as the, the pun in his name to the, the frog is kind of the animal that he's, he's represented by. And he's this like sweaty kind of disheveled and a bit like a, a bit of a mess, you know? And I think that's what makes him kind of a fun compelling character to uh, in, especially in contrast to the extremely reserved and you know uh, sort of overly sensitive Tsukiko and then also the the more macho detectives he's he's this guy who's kind of crawling along the floor to get as many like to kind of scrap together this living in order to pay off for you know running over an old man with a car <laughs> and it's compelling in a in a very um character actor kind of way. Like I think this, this show allows Cone to show off so much of his more realistic character designs or more off the beaten path character designs of, of people that don't seem like typical heroes, but instead look like people you may actually run into out in the world a bit more. One thing to add is that um, Con said in, um, I think, one interview at least, that uh, he did start Paranormal Agents without much idea of where the overall story would go. So um, so I think in the first part, you can say he is um, throwing ideas at the wall, including, as I say, this um, lovely bit where Kawazu suddenly is able to mimic um, the, mm-hmm. the co-workers perfectly. And that and you think that could be a device that will be, that will be uh, used again later. And as I recall, it isn't really. It, it, it just, um, it, it's just one scene. Uh, along with the uh, what seems to be the twin peak stroke where he suddenly is able to twist the um, stem of the cherry i think um, <laughs> yes. right yeah just maybe as um perhaps was just this knowledge that in japan i think it was shown on the same satellite channel that had shown twin peaks so you know so it waves the fans maybe I mean, it was shown hmm. on the same channel oh uh, wow wow i think i think they had i think they had shown twin peaks that's dope the trick looks a bit different coming from Kawazu than it does from Audrey Horn. I'll say that much. Um, but but the, but the subtext is the same. Yeah, very much so. I love the the imitation thing. It you know Joseph in in your notes I saw that you mentioned that it almost connects uh, Kawazu to to Hannah from Tokyo Godfathers and the sort of uh, over stylized ability to sort of morph their face and uh, take on different qualities and. I, I love how it, it, it escalates over the course of him doing the impressions too, where gradually he gets more and more makeup on his face as well as he's, and he's imitating the hand gestures and everything. Uh, I, I like the idea of this, like, you know, freelance writer or, you know, sort of TMZ style gossip columnist being able to impersonate the other people that he's spoken to and have all of that kind of stored in the back of his being somehow. It's a trick, of course, that's shared by an American cartoon star, Bugs Bunny. Think about all his uh, burlesque impressions um, at the tip of a hat. It's, uh, it's a Bugs Bunny trick. This is a classic, classic animation gag, I, I guess you'd say. Like, gag in the sense of joke, but also effect, 
right? At the same time, I love that sequence too. I think it's great. And and also, like, I think this is maybe my opportunity to say that as much as I despise Kawazu as a human, I kind of feel for the guy. Like, I've been there. I, th- I think as freelance writers, we can all say, maybe, I don't want to speak for you or for Ian, but it, it, this seems to be like an endemic freelance writer, like, problem where, like, you've been there where it's like, shit, got to get my paycheck. When's that next one deposit coming? What am I doing? Um, I got I to gotta find something. I'd love to see him try to get a girlfriend's. That'd be a great episode. <laughs> yeah, that'd be tough. <laughs> I keep showing him the cherry stem trick. Um, it'll that'll land eventually. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a hustler. You know, like the way that he's able to figure out the the hospital room number by sort of faking being a detective to the nurse is pretty clever. And you see him doing some like early internet research to find out information about the design company and all that. Of course, we're then also treated to uh, another, I think recurring theme on this show is like the corruption of the youth or something along those lines, or what's the issue with the youth is I feel like a a running question where Kawazu as, as payment for, you know, using the computer that this, these kids were using uh, is instead loads up some porn for them as he's leaving, you know, instead of paying them. Actually, my impression was that the kids were has, has already loaded up the porn. Uh-huh. I didn't think I was has uh, given them the picture. Oh, he just turns the download back on. Like that's what we're meant to see. Right. The, I think that's a valid interpretation. It it it's still sort of it's still sort of him just casually being party to um you know maybe exposing some kids to something that they might not uh you know know what it's going to do to their psyches later. Um, <laughs> You know, definitely not something child services would like Kawazu. Uh, vaguely criminal, maybe. Even in Japan, maybe. I don't know. Going back to the Morphe thing for one second. There is, sure. there is. I, I do take one small issue with the Morphe thing. And this is also something that I see running through the thread of Paranoia Agent. To an extent, I feel like this show is kind of Satoshi Kon playing the hits. Like, I think that sequence is... The Hana gag worked in Tokyo Godfathers. He knows it worked. Let's just bring it back, refine it, and do it in, in 30 seconds and make it really great, right? It's it's not the most innovative thing for him as a filmmaker. Not that everything has to be, right? This isn't necessarily a critique. But I do think that is sort of uh, something, uh, a project of his in Tokyo Godfathers. And maybe that, or not in Tokyo, in Paranoia Agent. And maybe that is a reflection of, as you said... He's sort of freestyling as he goes, right? He 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 doesn't have the arc sketched out. He doesn't have an end point in mind. So it's it's almost sort of like bits. It's it's almost like sketch comedy bits, and he's got like characters he's worked out in the past and he's repurposing things. Is my read of part of the way that the show continues to to work. Similarly, like Tsukiko's first arc, I see as and this isn't the first time he does it in this isn't the last time he does it in Paranoia Agent. It's sort of him like doing perfect blue again, but tiny. Yeah, there's a link to perfect blue, yes. I mean, although in fairness, um I'm I'm mean, thinking of the morphing scene. I'm not sure for me it's not that close to I, I agree there's a link to uh Han and Tokyo Godfathers, but um for me it's not that close. It doesn't feel like just like repetition i i agree it's mm-hmm. linked but um for me it's um i don't remember hannah doing anything quite like that in tokyo godfathers 
I think the scene that Joseph is referring to is the hospital confrontation where uh, Hannah has this long rant, but it's, it, I, I agree yeah. that they're, they're, they're linked, but they're not quite the same. I, I, you know, I feel like one of the, the fan narratives around paranoia agent is that it is where Khan ended up putting a bunch of ideas that he couldn't fit into his previous movies. He said that's Rixley in, in his views. Yeah. So I think we can see maybe like, oh, this could have fit into this other project. It, it would be easy for us to attempt to, you know, reverse engineer where these ideas could have fit in, but we'll, we probably will never know. So it's very difficult to say. Well, I, I guess what I want to get at then is, and this is something, this is a question maybe only you can answer, Andrew. Where do you see Paranoia Agent then? If we're still talking just about the first episode, we haven't gotten to the second. I've got a whole lot of thoughts about the second. But where do you see Paranoia Agent like fitting into his filmography as, as an artist, his like evolution as an artist and his crafter of his career? What do you see like Paranoia Agent's place in the narrative of Satoshi Kon, the, 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 the man, right? I'm just thinking about that. I mean, obviously... In some way, and this maybe reflects this in the fact that it did get to Britain, I think, um, sooner, I think, than either Millennium Actress or Tokyo Godfathers, which is that um, it's uh, in some ways it is close as Perfect Blue in that, obviously, it, it's a sinister series. It's, um, it begins with a very suspenseful sequence, the, the first attack, which is um, not far from things that happen in Perfect Blue. Um, mm -hmm. In some, I mean... A lot of people, I think, would say that uh, it is similar in colour or more similar in colour to Perfect Blue than to either Millennium Actress or Tokyo Godfathers, although, although um, it's, um, it certainly has some links to both of those as well. But the you can say that the tone, the colour is closer to Perfect Blue, which I suppose you could argue is a regressive step. But then it's... Obviously, as it goes on, and obviously as it goes goes on beyond the two episodes that we are discussing, I think that it, it gains other colours as it goes on. I mean, for me, Perfect Blue starts off as a, you could take it as a very sardonic meta-comedy. By the end and in the late episodes, I think it is doing other things as well. And um, I won't give way too much away, but certainly by the time that the really strong female character that I alluded to earlier does come in, I think at that point the series shifts um, into other territory. I mean, you said earlier that Paranoid Agents was uh, con having fun, which I think is true in, in some ways. Uh, you could also apply that description to Paprika in very different ways. But um, Paprika, I think, is a, a more genial, cheerful um, th thing altogether. But you could say that in both Paranoid Agents and Paprika, con is having fun <laughs> in different ways. Right. I, I do like pointing out that sort of balance between him having fun, which I think we could, we could use the, the Kawazu face and voice changing as a good example of this, like somewhat silly Bugs Bunny ish concept that he's, he's using to tell a, a fairly dramatic story contrasted with, I think the really dark underlying themes that are being laid out in, in this episode, like the very first scene, even before the attack is we have uh, these sort of this scattershot portrait of Tokyo of all of these various people uh, trying to avoid responsibility or trying to uh, pass the buck or pass the blame for something that they did onto someone else. 
And again, we have a, a lot of recurring conversation, both in like the, the sort of in world news footage that we see, or the detective Ikari sort of ruminating both in the first and the second episode about like what's going on with these kids. There's this theme of corruption of the youth or that the, the way that society is sort of cracked out is that the kids are bearing the brunt of a very repressive or uh, avoidant culture. So there's a lot going on underneath the surface and underneath the, maybe like the fun creative parts of the series that are, are, are grappling with some, some heavy ideas, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, well, regarding the opening sequence, I mean, I agree with you, it's very powerful. And um, for me, when I first saw it, I mean, I was struck by it as a kind of um, very, very bitter kind of uh, mm -hmm. portrait of modern Japan. But um, as I think it is in my book, I did actually ask Colin about that particular sequence. And he said that, um, on the one hand, there is anger in there. For him, actually, um, there was also humour that he was almost um, laughing at the people. For him, it was angry, but um, he did see an element of comedy in that sequence as well. I mean, to be honest, I'm not, um, I have more trouble seeing it myself. And um, I do think um, you could say it's, the, yep, the most angry, misanthropic opening to a con anime. But Korn himself, I mean, maybe that re reflects his um, odd sense of humour, but uh, he did, I mean, he, as I say, he acknowledged it was angry, but uh, he also said there was an undertone of uh, humour in it as well. Yeah, I think that even the the setup, the way I'm describing it, of uh, just sort of to ping pong on that idea of, of having, expressing something dark, but doing it in a funny way. For me, like there's that sequence where the detectives are going around, they're asking questions about shonen bat to a bunch of teenagers and kids and the the otaku that we mentioned earlier and this is intercut with this news footage of like a some sort of talk show where someone is voicing the complaint that i i attempted to to reiterate a few minutes ago about like oh society has gotten too repressed and the kids are bearing the brunt of it but then and like we have to teach these kids the difference between the, the real and the virtual worlds and then the kids in the next, the next cut are like Shonen Bat's an idiot. He should realize that this is, you know, you should keep the violence in the video games. So the kids actually already understand this. And it's the adults that are actually the butt of the joke in that sequence where they think that the kids are, are, you know, off their rocker, but the kids are actually more well-adjusted to this new version of society than the adults who have no idea what's going on are. Uh, so I, I, I can see the sense of humor that you're, you're, you're describing in that opening sequence in, in that later sequence. I agree completely. And um, also, it's, um, I mean, it's worth pointing out that Paranoidant, um it came out, was it 2000, 2003, 2004? That's not too long after, obviously, in the 90s, as you may well know, there was a big media panic in Japan about violent kids, um, partly linked to some really horrific crimes, um, including, for example, a schoolboy who committed a double murder in Kobe. That was in the 1990s. Um, this did lead to a media panic in a way that's kind of, I think, um, alluded to in Paranoid Agents. I mean, you, you could also link that to the instance of uh, real teenage violence in Tokyo Godfathers, where the yeah, uh, girl yes. uh, Miyuki does stab her father during an argument. And I mean, it's, it's not the first time, obviously, that uh, Kong's um, 
work has seemed to allude to Japanese media panic because obviously you have the um, attack who um, who is portrayed as a monstrous and a murder suspect in Perfect Blue that um, would seem to in some way allude to the media panic about Otaku not too long earlier in Japan, mm-hmm. which was to do with the uh, Satomu uh, Miyazaki murders and the um, and the kinds. Um, ba- basically, he was a child murderer. The media portrayed him as a demented Otaku, and that led to a kind of uh, sense of fear of Otaku that I think lingers for quite a while. And arguably, it's an uh, undercurrent in Perfect Blue. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's being quoted uncritically, but um, it is being alluded to, I think, in Perfect Blue. In the same way, you can say that Paranoid Agent is alluding, perhaps ironically, to the media panic over violent youth, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. No, I, I think you're totally onto something there. I, it's interesting how it does also resonate with, at least coming from an American perspective. In the 2000s, the sort of fear of school shootings and yeah, uh, like Columbine being linked to, say, you know, kids playing Doom or listening to Marilyn Manson or what have you. And I think that there is it's interesting that, you know, this this TV show made under entirely different social circumstances still ends up resonating with the same kind of moral panic that a viewer might be, you know, culturally aware of in the States at the time that it, it reached the United States. And, and indeed, and indeed there was a similar, similar cultural panic in Britain um, in, in the 1990s mm-hmm. as well, again, stemming from a particular murder case. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, th- th- yeah, but these things can happen in very different countries. Yeah. And maybe, maybe part of the reason that I, uh, I, I love, again, I love parent. I'm going to try to not be so much of Debbie Downer this entire season, but I feel like, I feel like I've just, I feel like I've just got to like play. I feel like I've just got to play the interlocutor here. I agree with all of that. However, I do think that maybe as an American growing up when we did there, Ian, there is sort of like a little bit of a disconnect here because I think there is still a little part of my head that says a kid with a bat. This is America, (laughs) dude. We've got guns. Like, a baseball bat and it's dented that does not intimidate me so 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 much you know but to to interlo- but to cast shade on my own shade casting you know as my significant other has told me multiple times you know at least for for her as as a grown woman she's like there's nothing scarier when you're late at night than like a pack of teenage boys mm-hmm. I, I, I think i think cone maybe discovered that in in Tokyo Godfathers, because there's the scene where like this sort of maybe maybe right wing like the youth gang beats up Gein and the they don't know he's already dead homeless guy. I think I think maybe right. you know he looks at that scene and he's like, oh, this is actually scary. You c- I could do a whole thing with this. And I think we also see the the homeless play a big part in Paranoia Agent as well, and that. While before uh, Tsukiko is attacked by uh, Shonen Bat for the first time, she's initially more terrified of the homeless woman that she walks past than of anything else, which I think is an interesting case of none of these characters are meant to be like the single virtuous hero of the story. All of them have these uh, biases or flaws to them. So even Tsukiko, who we are supposed to at least initially view somewhat sympathetically 
has the same sort of fear of the homeless that the otaku that shows up later in the episode does. Uh, and it's, it's saying like, this person is trying to avoid the homeless. It's like the same thing of like avoiding responsibility. We have the, the sort of cultural responsibility for these people that are, are left outside that even someone like Tsukiko would, would shy away from even wanting to engage with, with someone like that. So it's interesting how those, those two elements of that scene where we're, in in Tokyo Godfathers, where where the the homeless are the the primary sympathetic character, and here in Paranoia Agent, we get to see even more of how the rest of society views them by trying to avoid them. And my point was going back to uh, something the first said earlier about the uh, image with the boy with the bats. It um, mm-hmm. might be worth noting, of course, that uh, Japan around two thousands had well. It's made a controversial film as a film that could be shown, which was all about Japanese school kids wielding guns, including machine guns. And of course, that became a big hit in Japan. Battle Royale! And I believe in America, it was not released for quite a while. It's true. That was uh, the kind of thing that you had to know a guy that knew a guy to <laughs> to watch it. <laughs> but it sort of supercharged that film. It's like, like I remember being like uh, a movie blog brat. You know, in like high school before that movie came out, remember like people being like, oh, can you find a tour in a battle royale? It's the movie they don't want you to see. And, and, and that just like gave that movie a mystique that, to be honest, like I like battle royale. But when I finally did get to watch it, I was like, really? This is like, this is like the most tripped out shit I'm ever going to. This is as dark as it gets. Okay. I I, honest, I was like, I think Ava's worse, but <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea, though, because it also taps into the way that like public myth can evolve, you know, like yeah. this idea of, well, no one's seen seen Shonen Bat, but everyone's talking about him. So they start building up this idea of him in their heads. And it's even something as like a movie being banned. Suddenly it's like, well. It's got like the craziest stuff in it. Like a guy gets stabbed in the dick and battle royale, you know, like all that kind of like schoolyard banter or gossip around something that can't be seen only inflates it in some senses. And we, we see that same theme in paranoia agent itself. I, I, we should probably start to transition and, or at least bring in some of the characters from the second episode that we're discussing here, uh, because the way that the myth of Shonen Bat grows ends up not only having an impact on, say, the detectives who are trying to track down the mystery, but also has an impact on the the culture of the kids that may be potential suspects, which brings us to uh, uh, Yuichi, who's the, the main character in episode two, The Golden Shoes. Um, yeah, yes, I mean, I... I haven't seen this episode for a while, so it was interesting seeing this again. For me, it's it wasn't quite as effective as the first episodes, but um, I do think it's very effective. I do think it's very funny. Uh, a couple of things that struck me. One is that it's interesting in that if you were telling the story these days, of course, it would be all about social media. It would involve social media completely in the episodes as it plays you have the thing about the photograph the photo was circulated to um the kids uh, flip phones i mean it's uh, it's good right. to see uh, flip phones back again but otherwise um it's interesting that the whole um defamation of uh seems to be as far as we can tell it's by word of mouth you see the kids whispering to each other in corners it's um it's not actually done via computer as Certainly, you would expect today, and uh, 
even the way it was um, shown, I think, in Perfect Blue, it is um, it's played by word of mouth, which is something, of course, that uh, Con will do in a later Paranoid Agents mm-hmm. episode for the Housewives. But, th- but that was one thing that uh, is certainly I, it's certainly surprising now when we watch it now. But uh, maybe you could argue it was even surprising in the context of Con's uh, previous work in Perfect Blue. In some ways, I would say that's almost um, that idea that all of these sort of behaviors, whether it be bullying or gossiping or whatever, are caused by social media or are like perpetuated by social media. This this episode throws that into the trash and says, no, this is just how kids would behave regardless of the technology that they have access to. Going back to what you mentioned about how the internet plays into those kinds of bullying and, and mentioning perfect blue. We do need to note that in episode one, we get sort of a repeat of the, the Mima's room website instead with uh, Tsukiko's room where she's reading her email and it goes quickly from uh, messages of condolences to, you know, hate mail essentially of people uh, accusing her of faking the attack, which is, is very similar to the email sequences that we have in Perfect Blue. Satoshi Kon was trying to teach me the lesson that only editing a metal blog for five years taught me. And that <laughs> lesson is lock the comment thread. Turn it off, right. <laughs> throw it away. The comments are garbage. They're not worth it. Uh, Except for the fan up. mail that we receive for this podcast. Everyone, you're wonderful. Keep sending it in. <laughs> try sending the hate mail see if i read it i won't um (laughs) that's not actually a challenge please don't my ego so fragile speaking of fragile egos let's talk about yuichi (laughs) okay well okay so here's my okay here's my thing this is the episode that i in retrospect this is obviously like the episode that threw me like i in I, i was bought in on episode one i'm like a little weird but i'm into it okay weird maybe spoopy bat boy pervy frog guy get hit got it i'm like okay cool into it this episode threw me for two two reasons and the first one's personal so i'm just gonna put it out there because one of the things i like to do in my art projects is normalize mental illness and encourage people to seek therapy i come from uh, a long line of people who exhibit the symptoms of uh pathological narcissism uh can you imagine that listeners can you imagine (laughs) that I've been to a whole lot of fucking therapy about this. I like to think I've got my own symptoms mostly under control. Some people in my family don't. And um, just to play armchair psychologist here for a second, Yuichi is a textbook goddamn example of someone with narcissistic personality disorder. And so I think this episode maybe hit a little close to home for me. Like, I think I was like, okay, that's, that's a lot. I, I feel so bad for uh, everyone in Yuichi's family. He's got to be an absolute <laughs> fucking terror to deal with. And, 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 but it's well observed. Like, and that it's well observed, I think, makes it all the more, like, kind of like painful to watch. I think, as like someone watching Adult Swim for like the, the uncut shonen shows or like the big robot fighties, seeing like the, oh, here's a weirdly like comic sympathetic portrayal of a horrible human being this well rendered was like a bit too real, you know? Mm-hmm. I was thinking the, um, 
I think Con said that's for each episode of the series. He wants a signature sound. And I've just realised, of course, that in part two, I think it's the ting sounds whenever he smiles, which is this, this cartoon ting, which I, right. which I now can't get out of my head. Which is funny. I mean, it's um again, you could say it's almost uh, towards the Bugs Bunny scale of uh, things, but uh, it is very funny. Well, you the the you see him practicing it in the mirror too, which I love as like a touch. Yeah. The idea that he's he's aware that he can generate it at any time, and he's like working on it. But even that uh, sort of comic sound comes back uh, as a dramatic one later when he's, of course, because he this kid Yuichi is a baseball player who wears a baseball hat, a Yankees hat, of course, uh, and is riding around on inline skates. He you know, becomes this suspect for possibly being shown in bat. And while he's being uh, interrogated by the two detectives, he does the same ting sound, but when he gets ambitious, when he realizes, oh, I'll be able to use this to my advantage. And we see it with his like the sharpness of his eyes rather than with the winning smile that he presents it. Uh, so even the, the the humorous sound effects can take on uh, menacing import in uh, in the hands of someone like Kong. Doesn't Shonen Bat do it at the end, too? I think he does, yes. Um, I was just going to come on to that pass because the, the other thing that struck me watching this again is that, um, again, you could argue it's doing something different from the rest of the series, which is that it does seem to be a doppelganger story by the end mm-hmm. with the final punchline which is that uh, with his bat's face turning into uh, the boy's face. Right. And um, the idea seems to be, at least um, in part two, that obviously the boy is fantasizing about if only, you know, the stupid fat kid could be beaten up, then I would be the hero. And he's wishing this and wishing this. And of course, bats, of course, um, sweeps past his roller skates and um, does the deeds. And um, that, you could say, is obviously enacting the boy's wishes. He is doing what the boy wants to do. He's doing what you uh, actually wants to do, which mm-hmm. you could, I've argued, to I mean, that you could tie that back to Perfect Blue, where you could argue that the fan, that the killer, who sometimes appears as the phantom Mima, is arguably enacting what the real Mima probably wishes was happen, which is that all these awful men in, in, in her life would just die. And, of course, you know, there's this doppelganger in the film that is um, uh, providing that service. Um, in the same way, you could argue that um, Shonen Bass is performing that function within within this episode. Um, later on, of course, in later episodes, um, the meaning of Shonen Bass will shift and it will become much more about uh, uh, Shonen Bass uh, offer, uh, offering victimhoods and, uh, and an escape. But... Um, on a, on a simple level, I think the Golden Shoes, um, the, the tie-up is the doppelganger tie-up. It's, the, it's the, the kind of the dark other self who does what you really want to do. Well, I'd, I would say that that theme of Shonen Bat offering escape is present already in the first two. It becomes more pronounced in the later episodes. But, you know, Kawazu's whole accusation um towards Tsukiko is that she was attempting to escape the pressure of coming up with a new character creates this, this false attacker to get her out of it. And even Kawazu whose debts are mounting up and has to pay all these hospital bills and can't track down this story. It's at the moment where it's slipping out of his grasp and he doesn't know what to do that Shonen Bat shows up. And in the golden shoes, we get two different versions of that same idea. We have 
Yuichi desperately wanting Shonen Bat first to show up to attack Ushi and then to show up and attack him to prove that he is not Shonen Bat. It's the only way out is that if if Shonen Bat could attack him, then everyone would know that he, you know, he's not the attacker anymore. And so we're already starting to see this this pattern being built up of Shonen Bat arriving somewhat on the self-destructive wishes of his uh, of his victims. He's he's called in to to enact this violence. I think the structure of this story in particular is like very classic almost in like a fairy tale way and and mm-hmm. i i see it as you know you're sort of stereotypical careful what you wish for you just might get it theme repeated over and over again because like it, it, it's almost like a gag by the end but every time yuichi sort of gets what he wants whether it's shonen bat hitting Uishi or um the detectives coming to talk to him it works entirely opposite the opposite way of of his favor right right his attempts to bully uh, uh ushi out of uh running for the student council which is i just love that as a premise for this all of this drama being about the student council elections in a middle school uh great great tiny uh great framing device uh even his attempts to bully yuishi out of it end up working against him because someone has taken pictures of him without him realizing it while he's doing it right my favorite rug pull in maybe this entire episode is like the minute that he's at it as a bully uishi flipping it and making him into the victim which Mm -hmm. for him is worse he can't be seen as sympathetic. Like that same idea that you, you have this idea of him built up as being the best, as being, you know, number one, hence the, the pun in his name, Ichi being, you know, one in uh, in Japanese, uh, or each rather. Uh, you know, he can't suffer the idea of someone thinking that he's in a position of weakness at any time. So he only digs the hole down further in order to pe- appear strong at all times. It's like you know, lesson number one in toxic masculinity <laughs> right <laughs> here, this kid. <laughs> For me, the funniest bit, bit of the episode is actually um, just when he is wishing, if, if only, if only the, if the kids would be attacked and then suddenly you just see the figure of uh, Shonen Bat just whisking past. With no sound, too. I was just going to say that the Shonen Bat attacks in both of these episodes are like supremely well choreographed. And I know that like Cohen's often like, been quoted as uh, an animator who seeks influence or draws influence from uh, outside of animation and also like outside of Japan. I think that's maybe something that he sort of wanted to project in his image that his influences are not insular in any way. Right. And in both of these attack sequences more so in the first one, but, but also this, I see classic horror films. Like in the first episode, I saw like Val Luton's the cat people. I can see that, yeah, yeah. And and so I just, it's interesting that we, we talked about like the echoes of perfect blue, right? I To a great extent, even though like Paranoid Agent is a comedy, it's also like a horror series in a way that, that mm-hmm. perfect blue also was. And I, I really admired in the second episode his ability to shift from dark dramedy to horror just like that, just with the image of Shonen Bat like flitting past and I think the the horror side of things becomes even more pronounced at the very end of the episode where, you know, Yuishi is now convinced that everyone after uh, Ushi is attacked is convinced that everyone will think that he's shown in bat. And 
the entire perspective of the world shifts because we've been watching the whole episode from Yuichi's eyes, you know, how he perceives the world to be. And so suddenly at this moment where at his lowest point, the entire world becomes this wavy, disproportionate nightmare. And the great thing is that it's it's horror during the daytime, which I always appreciate. You know, he steps yeah. out onto the street and the sun has become the palm tree that Ushi was carrying. And it it's just so freaky because it's overlit. It's got that like, bright horror kind of element to it. So do you think maybe um, Ari Aster's seen this episode? There's some, oh, there's midsummer. some midsummer feels. <laughs> yeah. No, I, that was the point of comparison I was going to make when it comes to daytime horror. I feel like that's the, the, the modern touchstone for that kind of thing for sure. It also like the image of his when his mom comes into the into the room comes to talk to him and her like sort of wavery bulbous face keeps getting bigger. I it, mm-hmm. this that's got to be like Edvard Munch, right? That there that seems oh, to be like a, it does a kind conscious of like that. Yeah. Speaking of homages, we've mentioned Twin Peaks here uh, earlier, and I feel like we haven't really talked about the detectives too much, which are you know the the glue that ties these two episodes together which is they're investigating show and bat in the same way that we're kind of following along with them. They connect episode one to episode two because they uh, interrogate Yuichi. So unless there's anything specifically about episode two that we want to keep talking about, I'd like to talk about the detectives before we move on. I don't know if it's specifically about the second episode beyond that. I think the second episode is well done, but let's talk about the detectives and then, and then let's talk about maybe the interesting narrative structure of, paranoia agent sure so we've got the two detectives set up sort of loosely a good cop bad cop thing where we've got ikari who's the older gruffer not exactly the most sympathetic character to the people that he's interrogating and then we've got maniwa who's the younger fresh-faced cop who's got a more you know soft-spoken demeanor and a bit more of a you know the good cop of the two you know, I I love detective stories like this, especially ones where it does not quite work out well for the detectives that are <laughs> are looking into what they're looking into. And I think it's it's an interesting counterbalance where you have Akari who's, you know, a bit over the hill and is convinced that all the kids are out of their minds, including Maniwa. And Maniwa is able to sort of draw out more information from Tsukiko by being a bit more emotionally literate and uh, a bit more intuitive in his thinking, despite saying, like, we should do this scientifically. Uh, I don't know, what what are your impressions of the two characters as we see them so far and, and your general thoughts about this sort of detective structure that we've got going on in, in Paranoia Agent? I'm not sure how much I can say. I mean, um, I'm not a... I'm not particularly a detective show buff. I mean, I do believe that um, X-Files was very popular in Japan in the 1990s. Mm. Obviously, that's a a man and a woman, but uh, you could argue that's a slight influence maybe on on the formats of having these uh, two investigators. Sure. One that believes, one that does not. That's kind of the, the basic setup. I mean, I, I do find it very entertaining to, entertaining to watch and uh, particularly the silly sequence where Ikari starts talking directly to uh, Maromi and um, <laughs> and um, 
Sikiko just, uh, you know, are you mad? <laughs> that, that's, that's funny. And, um, and, uh, and as many was own reaction of, uh, of, of cracking up. I mean, that, that just makes it funnier. You can argue that really, despite their differences, they, they do start as the straight people of the series compared to these um, rather weird figures um, in, which, in which I would include both uh, Yuichi and, 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 and Sukiko. I mean, the detectives do start as um, very grounded. I mean, obviously, that becomes more complicated as the show goes on. You, you might want to edit this out, but I do tend to think that one of the detectives actually ends up becoming the paranoid agent of the title. That's my own theory, but uh, that obviously develops a lot later. I think mm-hmm. that's that's my read of it too, which I, I don't necessarily think is a uh, a position of honor necessarily. It's no. not a not a good thing, but yeah, I think they're they're both set up with these sort of more bland uh, or at least easy cop tropes that you're able to put onto them that become more complicated as as the show rolls on. But you're you get on board very quickly because of how easily they they fit into these ideas that we have about uh, detectives in fiction. I'm glad they're in the story although like them as a through line is to an extent like a necessity right because like the other thing that threw me about this episode but i think about paranoia agent in particular is that it it in that it shifts point of view um the the structure of the series is is a braided narrative right every episode is sort of in it in a sense, formally self-contained and fixates on a different character. And then usually in that episode, you're going to get one character that becomes uh, a more prominent character later. You don't, you don't get that in the first to the second, although you see kids with the golden shoes. And then the next episode is about a kid with the golden shoes, not to get too many spoilers, but uh, you know, maybe one of Yuichi's only actually good people in his life may have their own secrets. Maybe they're going to be a point of view character in a in a, a very good future episode, uh, coming up future episode. But at the time, you know, I uh, at the time when this came out, I don't think braided narratives were very de rigueur. I didn't have a lot of like running ground in context for how to deal with something like it. And so my initial impression of the show was that it was airing in some way out of order. (laughs) Obviously on rewatch, that's not true. The only like precedent for that in anime that I knew of is a show called Boogie Pop Phantom, which I I do have on, on DVD, but I haven't revisited since I, I got the box set probably like the same year that Paranoia Agent came out. Is there like maybe Andrew? Maybe you know, but like beyond beyond Boogie Pop, is there like a precedent for this in in the animated tradition or even in like TV in general? Like I don't know of very many like braided narrative shows be- before this. I mean, there, I mean, there, there are shows that are kinds of quasi anthology style. I think there's. Um... For example, there's Mushishi, which is one investigator, but a lot, a lot of the focus is on the people he investigates who are different in each episode. On Boogie Pop Phantom, the, the obvious thing is it does have links to Korn because um, I think the main, I'm trying to think which way around this, it's based on a popular series of light novels. But in the anime version, I think the main writer is uh, Sazuki Murai, who has um uh, worked with Con on Perfect Blue and uh, Millennium Actress, but also yep. 
um, one of the writers on Boogie Pop was um, Seishi Minikami, who is the main writer on Paranoid Agents and was going to work with Colin again on Paprika. So there is actually a brazed link of that kind. So, with it, you know, there, there's a connection. I mean, I, I do. Um, I actually had to see Boogie Pop again quite recently because uh, it's, it's being re-released in Britain. I, I should clarify for when we're listening. This is the 2000s anime series. There was a more recent uh, Boogie Pop series, which um, called Boogie Pop and Others, which uh, was broadcast in 2019. But the mm-hmm. 2000 series is, I think, interesting. I don't think it's perfect. Uh, one of the main contrasts is that um, it's just a very kind of uh, mellow opening sequence, which is um, entirely the opposite of uh, Paranoid Agent's opening sequence, which is um, one of the loudest and most um, shocking that I've heard. I mean, the, the mad yodeling. I mean, it's... Uh, but um, I, I do think they're interesting compliments, um, Boogie Pop and Paranoia. I'm glad you brought up the opening because it actually connects to the, the braided... Uh structure of the episodes which is that in all of the opening sequences we see a variety of characters you know and it's every single episode that we see it we can start remembering who those characters are and so when they do for example show up as say a side character in episode two we can go oh she's from the opening theme i should pay attention to this right and yeah, I, I, the story I always uh, I, I've read, I think maybe second or third hand, is that the idea was to have this incredibly loud, high energy opening tune for to kind of wake up the audience uh, late at night, so that they would start paying attention to whatever it was that just came onto the screen. Uh, if effective, I yeah. <laughs> I will. I I every time I have turned on this show to rewatch, usually it's late at night when my partner is already asleep, and I every so often have forgotten to turn the volume way down before I can hit the skip intro button because God damn. Um, yeah. The system of Hirasawa came really far, like blazing out of the gate with it. It is a exclamation point at the beginning of the TV show. It's great. <laughs> In sharp contrast to the end theme, which is more mm. like the boogie pop theme, this very sort of light dreamy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've i've just taken too many ambien maybe i'm going to trip out for a second and i think doesn't the end theme sort of like get quoted musically like before people get shown in bat attack well so it shows up in two places in these first two episodes the first time we hear the ending theme is when Moromi sits up and starts talking for the first time which i think is a a very pointed example of of using the ending theme which we're supposed to think is like ah lulling us to sleep take a rest you know it'll be okay Uh, it's this lullaby essentially and so maromi lifting its oversized head up and waddling around over to tsukiko to say like hey don't worry about it it's all going to be okay i think is very pointed it shows up again in episode two after yuichi throws out his shoes which is the i'd say the most sympathetic moment that he has as a character where you know he's this kind of like full of himself brat but then at that moment you realize like oh this is really ruining this kid's life and i do feel bad for him so i'm not sure if it's as pointed of a a musical cue the second time it happens but the fact that it's paired so closely with maromi and that maromi shows up as you know the center of the question mark on the the final image of 
the uh, the closing credits, I think is we're supposed to take note of that for sure. And right. also you hear Maromi's voice, I think, in the ending song as well. Oh, yeah. Sort of the, the weird sample that kind of flits around in the background. Sounds, sounds like a, a like a baby's gurgling, right? Right. Teletubby. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. God. Teletubby-esque. That's a good point of comparison. The last image in that sequence of like the Teletubby-sized Maromi, very, <laughs> un, very un, unsettling. I do not want to see a human-sized Maromi in a darkened alley. I would rather see Shonen Bat. Uh, well, I'm, I'm now visualizing Pamela Agent's remakes with the Teletubbies. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gross. god. Well, gross. Uh, j- just to even go back to the opening theme a bit. I think the lyrics to the opening theme earlier in this uh this season, Joseph and I talked about the sort of the shonen opening themes and shonen shows and even when we talked about Evangelion uh last season, we talked about how the opening theme lyrics for those kinds of shows are sort of like these pump up themes for the main character in some way, right? They're describing the action of the hero. Uh, obviously Ava is, it's, it's a bit more ironic and has a bit more of a, a darker implication once you've gotten to the end of the show, but the lyrics to this opening theme by Susumu Hirasawa, I think aren't about any of the characters necessarily, but are about addressing the sort of theme of hyper positivity in the face of catastrophe. You know, it's, uh, don't look at the tsunami. Like, don't think about it is one of the lyrics. And we, we have like, ah, you know, it's the, a beautiful day where the dream is like rising to the sky and while there's an atomic bomb exploding in the background and all that. And we see the primary cast all having these like rictus grin laughing faces while drowning or hurtling towards the ground or, you know, in the middle of a, uh, a monsoon or what have you. And I, I just love that how that sets up both it has this functional purpose of being this giant alarm clock that wakes us up before the show, but also is like introducing us to this, this theme of like aggressive, like over positivity, hiding something very dark and something very uh, dangerous just behind the the sunshine veneer. I'm now thinking that uh, lots of climate change groups could uh, use that opening sequence to make a point. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I bet that uh, what's that movie that just came out? Don't look up is, you know. Oh, you yeah, know, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, kind it's of, funny. Uh, that I think this in a way, I think Paranoia Agent has a subtlety that Don't Look Up doesn't have. I'm, but I, I'm sure it does. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to digress into that. But I did think about that opening theme when I was. I watched. Don't look up. There is that. The. I think my favorite image from the opening is. I, I think it's one of the last ones. But it's Equation Man, who I guess has a name. I don't know what his name is. But it's Equation Man on the moon, while apparently there's a global thermonuclear war happening on Earth behind him. Mm-hmm. Is what it looks like. I woke up this morning and for like the 14th day in a row, Alexa's telling me about tensions with Russia and the border of Ukraine. So like that image has now begun recurring to me before I go to sleep. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for asking me to watch Paranoia Agent at this stage in human history, Ian. (laughs) (laughs) I I like that particular shot because the old man is the only one who's off of the planet. He's the only one who's not actually... Uh, in the face of any of the danger that we see the other characters either he's not standing in traffic he's not 
you know, he doesn't have the atomic bomb directly behind him the way that Ikari does. He's not drowning, etc. And in that same way, he sort of functions as this character that exists outside of the narrative of the show that's able to see the big picture and comment on it, which is why we get in, you know, these post-credit sequences, which I also think is very Twin Peaks-esque. Uh, reminds me a lot of the Log Lady teasers that would happen before Twin Peaks episodes where you'd get these sort of really difficult to track down allusions to events that have yet occurred, these sort of puzzles that are presented to the viewer to solve what's going to happen in the next episode. And the old man who we see is, you know, writing the equation and is on the moon is the one relaying these messages, these sort of prophecies about what's going to happen next, which I think are also sort of trying to lead us down this path of becoming more and more invested in the mystery. And, you know, you alluded to perhaps one of the detectives becoming the paranoia agent. I think we're supposed to sort of become the paranoia agent along with them. It is a, it is a fun narrative device, the, the equation and the number. And then the show does train you to look for the number in Mm -hmm. the, in the show. Like every, it, 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 every number corresponds to, a character, right? I think right. that's in its own way an echo of that the title to every episode is uh there's no title card, right? Like it's always in the setting somewhere and it uh shows up. You're being taught to pay attention basically. Right. I I think that's pretty masterful. I know that I know that that this is the only TV series Cone did, but with those two like narrative devices, it shows that he really did have like a great grasp of the form. You know, like, I, I wish he'd been able to do more. He, he shines as a movie director, but I, I, I sort of wish he'd been able to do more like this, maybe. He also, he also has fun with the eye catches in the, in the middle of the uh, episodes with uh, all those weird, crackly designs um, uh, mm. around the adverts. <laughs> the stingers, yeah. yeah. Uh, also, also very distressing, but they also hide clues in those too, like the the butterflies that show up. For example, if we take the old man's prophecy to be meaningful, is a clue about another character or a a reference to another one of the characters that may or may not have showed up in these first two episodes. <laughs> I totally missed that. I I I just thought like the stingers were like, let me put an anxiety inducing image. <laughs> I think they they mostly work that way, but the choice of butterflies is, I think, a a deliberate one. Certainly, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to keep watching for those in the in the future um, as we continue on this journey. I did I did want to maybe Andrew, while I have you here, uh, go go back to Boogie Pop for a for a second. It's interesting that there is this like connective tissue. Like I said, I haven't seen it in years, but I I. I recall having the same reaction you did that it's interesting, but maybe a, a little rough, but there's also sort of a, sort of a similar narrative set up, right? It's sort of like kids talking about like this web of interpersonal relationships. There may be something sinister or sort of paranormal going on in the background, repeated character designs, right? Yes. I mean, that's true. I mean, I, I do think it's, uh, le- it's less funny. It's, uh, I think Paranoid is uh, a great deal funnier. Bookie Pop is fairly miserable at times. I think it's, um, um, I mean, I was compare Boogie Pop to things like um, Serial Experiments Lane, um, which was uh, not that much. Uh, it was about it was around the same time, I think. 
it's it's more from the point of view of um, uh, adolescence. Um, Paranoid and I think more of the characters are adults. It's partly, I would say, Boogie Pop is partly about uh, teenage nights. Partly, a lot of the um, a lot of them are these very troubled, miserable, insecure teenagers um, who, um, yes, start seeing things in the shadows, and it's and it's more than one thing, and uh, it, it, it's not just um, a kid with a baseball bat. Uh, but, but yes, I mean, it's um, I certainly think there are analogies between them. Well, the reason I bring that up is to say, you know, how how much. How much of it? How much of a say do you think that that the scriptwriters had in in constructing Paranoia Agent, right? Because obviously it's a very well written show, and also as I've said before, one of the projects of this second season is to correct, I think, some some mistakes I made in our first season, where I, I think I gave Hidekiano too much credit for Evangelion, and I I think I I want to present with Cone, even though we're following his filmography, a more holistic view of the anime making process, right? Like I want to talk about like the way that the individual episode directors put spins on things, individual animators put spins on things. Your book has been invaluable for this, by the way. And so like the reason I bring th- I bring that up is because if, if Boogie Poppin and um, Paranoid Agent share writers and they have similar setups, you know, what, ep- what elements of Paranoid Agent do you think can be attributed to individuals who, who aren't cone? Like, I-, I think it's useful for us to try and pull this, pull this mm-hmm. knot apart. It's, um, it's an interesting question. I can't, um, I'm afraid I can't say too much. I mean, Boogie Pop, I haven't, I have not read the source novels. I mean, it came from a series of uh, what they call light novels in Japan. So, um, I don't know whether that is a similar structure to the anime or not. Uh, as far as Paranoia Agents goes, um, Con does, I quote him in my book, um, Con does say that he was um, partly attracted by the idea of a structure that um, allowed um, episodes to be to some extent separate, that it was more of an anthology. And so I, I think he used the idea of the, of the relay race, the idea that characters from from one episode hands over to another. I was talking earlier about the earlier about the detectives as being a through line, but of course they disappear for a portion of the of the series for about three episodes themselves, and uh, and as we're left with um, other people. I mean, your point about um, giving more credit to the individual people under Con, I think, is a very good one. Or my impression certainly is that uh, a late episode, Part A's Happy Family Planning, does reflect the sensibilities of a particular animator, um, mm. maybe f- maybe far more than it does Con. That uh, seems backed up by comments of heard elsewhere. But beyond that, I just don't know. I, th- I think that's I think that the structure and the relay structure may have been something that Con was keen on himself but yes i mean as as you say the the writers like uh like mr medikami may have had uh, a big input as well that, that's true i think maybe it's because you you were, were bringing up later episodes in this series and i love having you here for the start so we can like re- lay the track for the remainder of the series but as good as these two episodes are i do think that some of the more interesting stuff in the series does sort of happen I'd say in the pre-climax, right? There's in particular, like for listeners to watch out for, there's a run of episodes that 
that um, court controversy you mentioned, happy family planning. That's got to be that's got to be one of the most button pushy things I've I've seen that that isn't human centipede. That's the most button pushy thing I've ever seen. And then uh, there's also later going to be an episode about the animation making process, what it takes to to make an anime, right? Like, and it does sort of. It's almost as if he's like giving to the fans. A, a blueprint for how to break out like the director isn't everything here's what a key animator does this that this that and the other right mm-hmm. so I, I think it's appropriate to have this conversation when we're talking about Cone. well a, a big part of the 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 trouble of talking about an episodic tv show like this even one that does have uh recurring characters throughout I, even it's actually even harder because there are recurring characters throughout that we can't talk about so much of what makes for example the detectives interesting because we just haven't gotten to know them that well yet. So a lot of, I think of what we're talking about in these first two episodes, we've had to do some dancing around what we know to be true from later episodes of, of the show. But what I will say in the favor of these episodes is that if you have watched the whole show, rewatching these two is almost as fun as watching them for the first time because of all of the track that uh, the, to reuse your metaphor has been laid out. You can now see where that uh, where that's going to some extent. And even if it was not necessarily planned, I think there's a lot that happens in the the final stretch of the show that is calling back to information that is given to us at the very beginning. That's very that's very true. I I, I did want to note out one thing that I saw in my rewatch, which is it's not just that the braided narrative is a little off-putting that it doesn't have a lot of uh precedent before this it's it's also that um the series doesn't hold your hand with regard to getting to know these through line characters i don't think they say ikari's name once in these first two episodes and i just rewatched this like 48 hours ago and i was looking i know this because I write the little episode summaries that Ian and I read at the beginning of, of our podcast. And uh, I, it took me a long time to be like, detective dot 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 big guy <laughs> question mark says. And I'm rewinding like, what's what's his name? It, it's funny that these are, are your, you know, the people who are supposed to hold your hand. And yet, in a sense, the palm is greased, right? Like, it, it, we don't get a good sense of them early on they do develop very slowly very incrementally which is not something that cone has a chance to do in his films you know his films are very fast he does a lot of movie in 90 minutes right Mm -hmm. right this is an interesting case of where each episode does move very quickly in that all of them are sort of focused on these very self-contained stories but they also have this chance to stretch out this longer continuous narrative over the course of the tv show uh, which I think is a really difficult trick to pull off. Um, and I think, in my opinion, the show does pull it off. I think it, it does simultaneously feel episodic and long form at the same time. But at the very outset, it's it's hard to see the big picture quite yet. That's that's true. I think maybe that might have to do with... I mean, Andrew, you're you're from the UK, so maybe you have a different understanding. But and and Ian, you're a little younger than me, so maybe you have a different understanding. But you know, one of my hesitations around doing the second season, even though I'm really glad we're doing it because I'm getting a lot out of it, is that Cohn's work is not the easiest to to get mm-hmm. in in the United States. And like Paranoia Agent had everything it needed 
to to really be a breakout hit in the United States. Like having a prime slot on Adult Swim could do a lot for for an anime series. Like I'm thinking specifically of Fooly Cooly, right? Sure. Yeah, Which is yeah. only four episode, only six episodes, I think. Six episodes, and yeah. is maybe more oblique than Paranoia Agent. Like certainly less American in its in its references, and maybe moves and cuts even faster, right? And yet, fully Cooly for, like, I think a certain generation of people, like, became part of the cultural milieu. I, I think I think maybe in America, to casual animation fans, fully Cooly is probably about as popular as Evangelion is, which is crazy. Like, it's, it's like right behind Ava and Cowboy Bebop in that everyone knows about it, right? right. Whereas, like, I think Paranoia Agent is probably of a similar quality bar, but... Did I don't I think to an extent is like largely forgotten. It's I don't think it's had a 4K or a Blu-ray release. I may be wrong. Maybe I'm speaking out of pocket. I'm gonna go get on Amazon now while we're talking. But you know why do we think that 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 is? And 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 that also sort of mirrors that Cohen's movies after Perfect Blue. Hard to find. It it seems like he had. You'd, you'd know this. It seems like he had all the momentum in the world behind him after Perfect Blue for a while. It seems to me like the industry was setting him up to be uh, Miyazaki's big competitor. And, and that and that didn't happen. So, like, what 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 is it? Where is where are the gears not catching? What do you think? Thinking, I mean, it's just say in, in Britain, I think Perfect Blue, we Perfect Blue, we got uh, sorry, Paranoid Ethan's. We got fairly much on the heels of Perfect Blue in, in the way they, in the way those two do connect, mm-hmm. because um, I mean they are both sinister, they're both kind of um, scary series. In in a way, um, perhaps they were easier entry points for anime fans in Britain at the time than other things like Millennium Actress and Tokyo Godfathers. In Britain, I think for there may have been a while where Paranoid Agents may have been second to Perfect Blue in terms of um, the best known con work. It's may I'm not sure. I mean, I think uh, Perfect Blue, I think, has been is was uh, reissued in British cinemas uh, a few years ago. Paranoid Agents has been kind of in in print, as it were, on DVD in Britain for a long time, although for most of that time it was uh, censored. There was uh, a certain sequence which you've already uh, referred to from Happy Family Planning that was um, cut from the DVD editions for a long time, although Mm -hmm. um, it has now been restored to the newest release, which is uh, available now from a company called MVM. I mean, I, I, I do think certainly Perfect Blue may be still the number one con title in terms of recognition in Britain. And maybe, Paranoid may be number two, I think. Yeah, if that helps at all. No, I appreciate the insight. Um, just to correct myself earlier, Perfect Blue has been issued on Blu-ray in the United States. However, it was only done in December of 2020. So weeks before Ian and I decided to do this. <laughs> so I, I, main, I maintain long, long gaps of not being able to find it here in the United States. And even, even to watch it, I didn't buy the Blu-ray. So I mean, Ian, I don't know what format you're using for your rewatch, but I had to get it on. 
I had to buy the episodes on Prime Video. Uh, as as our former podcast guest Emily Yoshida would say, I'm flying to Japan for these episodes. So, good. <laughs> no, no further comment. <laughs> okay, sorry, I didn't mean to inadvertently prompt you to incriminate yourself in recorded <laughs> form. Um, I did do that, but I did not mean to do that. In Britain, there have been fairly recently new Blu-ray releases of uh, of both Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress, I think, and not the yeah. I, I think I think I think actually Paprika has been sort of out of sight for a while in Britain, oddly enough. Because I know that, that the the Criterion Channel has put up Millennium Actress and and Paprika, uh, but the the other two movies are very difficult to find on streaming services in America and paranoia agent is just nowhere to be found as to why I think part of the reason for maybe it's lack of popularity relative to the other shows discussed is that it's difficult to summarize or pitch to a particular audience because of it, the braided narrative element and the degree to which the, the genre of the show kind of changes from episode to episode to some extent. Uh, And scene to scene and scene to scene makes it very hard to say exactly like, for example, Evangelion, you could say person who likes Shonen, person who likes Mecha, you know, person who likes complicated human emotions. Here you go. Here's Neon Genesis Evangelion. Paranoia, you have to be kind of like, well, it's sort of a detective show. It's sort of supernatural, but not maybe hard to say. Like it's kind of the elevator pitch is much more difficult, I think which makes it harder for companies to figure out exactly who they should market this thing to. If anyone involved in the industry is listening and considering, I actually think now is a great time for people to try and dig into Paranoia Agent. It seems, first of all, slightly more relevant to me now than it did when it was first aired. And second, while you're right that it does sort of like evade easy genre, I think it has like a good thematic tie into this current interest that um, I I think is occurring in America that I see around uh, sort of uh, the intersection of true crime and the the supernatural Mm -hmm. in, in podcasts. I'm thinking like the the my favorite murder or last podcast on the left audience like any people in those audiences who have an interest in animation i think could find a lot to like in paranoid agent in that it 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 does examine criminality and it also examines the power of urban of urban legend of of Mm -hmm. modern myth making right and um it's it's Unlike a lot of anime, I don't think it's not too, too leery with the young girls. It's not like ultra violent. Unlike Evangelion, it doesn't ask you to come in with like the translated lesser key of Solomon to understand the B-tier <laughs> plot points. Right, Although right. to me, that's that's one of the things I liked about it. I liked having to try and like become a minor league occultist to understand the story. But I understand that people don't, right? Admittedly, you might need a certain constant warning for Happy Family Planning. Sure. Well, yes. But I think that's also like part of the reason. I don't know. Ian, I wonder what you think. And this is a good question for you too, Andrew. But in the course of like doing this podcast, I've had to wonder, what is it about Japanese animation? And specifically, it seems like Japanese animation from a certain uh, era and ethos in school 
or or practice maybe that appeals to me right because i i'm seeing less of less of the kind of stuff that i really enjoyed seems to be new now or being made now i've tried to like find new stuff that scratches this same itch i'm having some trouble right it's not like there's another serial experiments lane for me to find it it seems although mushishi is on my is on my list I'm going to check out Mushishi. I know it's, I know it's coming. Right. You know, but I think some of that might be this, this, a combination of like stylistic daring do and also willingness to play with uh, vague, vaguely taboo subject matter in a thoughtful way, in a way that doesn't seem like being edgy for the sake of being edgy. Yes, well, I mean, I think that's uh, an excellent summary of Paranoid Aiden's appeal. Um, I'm not sure I can better that. In, t- in terms of how, uh, how I would um, try to um, recommend it to acquaintances, I might just say it's a TV series from the, from the director of uh, Perfect Blue. I mean, that would be the obvious yardstick. Yes, I mean, that, as I say, I, th- I think your summary just now, yeah, it certainly does, uh, I would say, it does sum up Paranoid Aiden's very well and... I don't think I can top it. Fair enough. I mean, to to sort of address the other question that you had, Joseph, it was exactly like what is now missing? Like, why are we not getting more paranoia agents or, or Evangelians or lanes or what have you? Uh, my guess would be that there's, uh, there's too much money in the industry to, to suffer <laughs> weirdo choices like this. Uh, but that might be me sort of transplanting my ideas about the American film industry onto the Japanese animation industry. So I, I don't quite know if that uh, that holds up, you know, like the example of it's in American film, it's go big or go home. You have to make these giant, you know, multinational blockbusters that make millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and anything smaller than that is not worth the millions of dollars it takes to create if it can't bring that money back in. Um, I know certainly anime has gotten bigger in the West since the airing of Paranoia Agent. I imagine it is, you know, the movies like uh, Demon Slayer, what have you, are are doing blockbuster numbers. Once an industry gets that big, it's just difficult to find weirdo outlier stuff. But then again, maybe it'll bubble up years after the fact. Like it took me six years to catch up with paranoia agent maybe in another six years some other hidden gem will uh rise to the surface i'm just thinking i mean i can think um i mean i um i have to cover anime to cover new anime regularly for neo magazine there are a couple of series that in both cases i've not got to the end of the of the, of the respective series and in both cases i know the series are controversial with fans but um two that come to mind one was i think called babel and the other was more recently was called One's Egg Priority. In both cases, there were there were certainly episodes that seemed um, to me interesting, and um, in some cases comparable to some of the areas that uh, Colin was working in. I, I'm not, um, as I say, I've not got to the end of either series, and um, I know that um, 
they are both angered fans, I, I believe, for various reasons. But I think there were moments, I mean, I mean, for example, Babel, I think, um, again, deals with, it, it does deal with um, some very disturbing disturbing themes in the ways that um, I know that some viewers found either too facile or, or just offensive. But mm. there were moments in it, I think, that... Um, felt to me a bit like con there also of course um at, there's also i've, I've written not an article about this on animation for adults but um i find echoes of con in some of the recent american adults animation um there are a few episodes of uh, bojack horseman i think that's um mm-hmm. in that direction certainly and also of course as you may know there's undone the series in amazon prime which um has um some echoes of perfect blue it's about again the idea of a woman who may be going mad or may be seeing a kind of um alternative reality it's a mm-hmm. rotoscoped series but i thought the first season was rather good i see con elements occasionally oh yeah the uh there's a rotoscoped Japanese film, anime film, called The Case of Hannah and Alice, which um, to me has um, a lot of the charm of Tokyo Godfathers. So mm. I, was, uh, I was bringing that up as well. Yeah, I think like, you know, we've mentioned previously the sort of uh, influence that Khan has had on American filmmakers that we talked at great length about something like Black Swan, for example, in our Perfect Blue episode. Uh, and it's going to be tough for me to not think about true detective when doing this TV series, at least because that's a, a, Oh yeah. Uh, but we'll, we'll dig into that when, it, when it's relevant and you know, when we have a bit more to deal with, with our, our current animated detectives in, in paranoia agent. Uh, but just something to keep in mind. I, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if there's anything else that quite captures the same magic, uh, at least that I, I can think of, but these are good examples to go off of. And I'm, I'm glad for the, the recommendations. So thank you. Absolutely. I've got my little sticky note here. We'll be, <laughs> we'll be checking, checking them out. Although I, I wonder if any of them are going to have a, an, an intro quite so bombastic. Yeah. Um, True Detective definitely took notes about having the great intro. Uh, I don't want to take up too, too, too much of your time, but I thought it, it feels like, correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen, but it feels like we've, we've kind of got the first two episodes on lock. I feel that way. Certainly. Okay, I think we've laid the ground for the remainder of Paranoia Agent. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's good. There's good stuff to come. We've got to stop uh, spoiling even better future episodes. I think. <laughs> so in, in the meantime, I, in the meantime, I just thought I'd I'd uh, do two last things with you, Andrew. So for, first of all, I wanted to ask, when is it going to be at all possible? Do you think for maybe our listeners to get a new copy of your of your great book on satoshi Kon because um i think there's like three in the u.s library system i think i had to get mine sent from uh the public library in utah maybe <laughs> something like that you know when we started doing this show I, when we started doing this season i said to ian well you know one great thing about cone is there's a book the downside is if i'm gonna own it it costs a thousand dollars <laughs> I wish I could get thousands. It won't come to me. <laughs> I was I was gonna say every cent of that goes goes directly to you, so it's money well spent, right? <laughs> I don't think so. I wish I wish in, in in a better world. Um that's an excellent question. I will do my best. Um I mean 
all I can say really is what's this space and um, what you've just uh, said now may help my endeavours. So thank you. Um, the, the, the comments you've just made now may help. Believe me, I am. I hope so as well. I will try. I mean, um, for the records, actually, um, at the moment, I'm just uh, finishing off updating another of my books, which is um, which is 100 Animated Feature Films, which is uh, published by the uh, British Film Institute. Um, uh, there should be a new edition of that um, this year, where I find... Uh, in my first edition, I only included Tokyo Godfathers, I think. In uh, this edition, I've uh, seen the error of my ways since I'm including Perfect Blue as well. So that should be out this summer. But regarding Satoshi Kon, the illusionist, um, I want to see it back. I will do my best. And um, I will do my best. <laughs> That's all I can say. It's it's not a it's not a mandate. I I know the decision isn't all isn't all yours. I understand. I I just it was a it was a great read, at, especially for such like a brief read. And now I'm gonna have to track down, although not for any specific reason, I'm gonna have to track down uh, your book on Ghost in the Shell now, because I I I feel like I need to deep dive that series. Um, for no reason at all. The, uh, um, just so you know, the, the Ghost in the Shell f- uh, book is specifically on the original 1995 film. It's um, it does not go into the other versions, especially. Although I talk, I, I talk a little about the manga, but it's um, the um, I was commissioned to do it, and the focus was on the original 1995 Ghost in the Shell. That's great. That well, I mean, it's classic. You everyone loves the original ghost in the shell although i i uh at this point in time if if i never get a chance to say it again i will say listeners check out the standalone complex uh series is i think they're great joseph you said you had one final uh point of business that you wanted to discuss before ending the podcast yeah okay this is this is the last one listeners and i'm sorry for like i'm sorry for being a total mic hog this morning (laughs) um but here's here's one thing I gotta hear from Andy. What's it like talking to Hideakiano, man? <laughs> taking it back, taking it back to the first season because I I don't know anyone who's ever had a chance to be in a room with the guy. Um, it was um, it was a group interview. Um, it was on the top of a skyscraper. Actually, well, on the upper floor of a skyscraper um, during the one of the uh, Tokyo Film Festivals. Um, they, they they ran a retrospective on, on, on this work a few years ago. My main impression I remember, uh, I wrote it at the time, was uh, simply that he seemed very, very together. That, even, that struck me even more than with Con. He, I, I mean, I'd, I'd seen the film of Anno, for example, on the uh, Kingdom of Dream and Dream's Madness documentary, where he's, and, uh, and on some other the documentaries where he does seem kind of um disheveled and um a little anxious and insecure and when i actually saw him in the flesh um he did seem kind of almost um sleek and um well presented and um my impression was that if he was once uh, if he was once uh, shinji akari he did now strike me as much more like gendo <laughs> There you go. <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe it was his marriage that made all the difference. I mean, um, you know, I mean, that certainly is the impression given by other places. So, yeah. 
Maybe it was all down to um, uh, finding the right partner. So you're telling me that he made them erect a giant pyramid behind him before he would speak? <laughs> when you said top floor of a, a skyscraper, I couldn't help but think that he was behind some giant desk with the tree of life whirling out in front of him. <laughs> There is this quote about him from, I think it's from Mamoru Oshii, who, and, and like, okay, and it, and it was on also on Anime News Network. So like, take it with multiple grains of salt, because love that news source, but they got to publish some attractions every so often. And also Mamoru Oshii is like a John Carpenter, where he just like throws shade for the fun of it, right? I think he's just, a, I think he just like likes talking shit and respect. Respect. <laughs> Respect, right? But like, I think I saw a quote from Mamoroshi about Hideaki Anno recently where he says, yeah, he got his life together. Um, I think it's because he, he likes making money. <laughs> That's believable. <laughs> yep. Well, Anno likes making money. I like making this podcast. I thought this was great. Andrew, thank you so much for devoting your evening to coming on to this podcast and uh, talking about Cohen with us. It's been a delight. This has been an absolute joy. All right. And for everyone else, we'll be back next week with the next two episodes of Paranoia Agent. Those are going to be episodes three and four if you're watching at home. Until then, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.